0: What's a cow's favorite note? B-flat. Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy, famous artists I'll never be able to play like, and topics or tips about guitars and music recording. Now before we get into our topics for this week, I think this episode is going to end up being a little different. I feel like with all of our demos, we're always doing quite a bit of clean stuff, and while I like it that way, because it gives you guys the opportunity to see exactly what each effect is doing to the tone without anything else changing it, Most people don't use our guitars completely squeaky clean. We've got anything from a light breakup, to mild overdrive, to aggressive distortion, all the way to ripping spitty fuzz. Now while I never intended this episode to make up for all the clean tones that we've had over the past few weeks, there's really no way to talk about Sun the Band and their doom metal tones without introducing mountains of gain. So buckle up, we're going to blow out some windows, we're going to make some dogs howl, and we're going to finally get a chance for me to meet my neighbors when they come to the door to complain. (laughs) But first, let's get into the news. Now first up, the 2023 list of musicians and bands to be inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio has just been released, and one of them is a band I've been waiting on for a while. The big one for me this year is Rage Against the Machine. I remember going to the Rock Hall and voting for them a couple years ago but they finally made it into the ranks of the 365 previous inductees as of last year. The other acts to be inducted are Sheryl Crow, Link Ray, Willie Nelson, Kate Bush, George Michael, Missy Elliott, and The Spinners, among a few others as well. The rules to be inducted into the Rock Hall are actually pretty simple. 25 years after an artist or group releases their first album, they become eligible for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in one of a few different categories. Performers, or main acts, Non-performers, such as lyricists, songwriters, producers, and DJs, musical influence, or those who may not play rock and roll, but their styles and composition have influenced rock and roll, and sidemen, or those who have performed as session musicians and supporting acts for larger groups. Depending on the year, there's only a certain amount of names that can be inducted at once, sometimes as low as 7, other times as high as 16, and prior to 2012, the nominees would be sent to a committee of 1,000 people who would vote on those inductees. Since 2012, fans are now able to cast ballots either online or in person at one of the Rock Hall's voting kiosks. A few people have been inducted more than once, usually once as a solo artist and again as part of a band, with one person being inducted three times, Eric Clapton, as a member of both Cream and the Yardbirds, and again as a solo artist. Surprisingly, one of the nominees this year that didn't make it was Iron Maiden, who I'd expect to easily eclipse George Michael because, well, you know, it's the... Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I digress. I mean, who knows? Maybe there was a backhanded deal going on. Somebody heard about it, and George Michael made it in because of a, uh, careless whisper. Huh? <laughs> huh? You get it? Because, you know, secret deals? Whispering? Ah, uh, whatever. If you have to explain a joke, it loses its humor. Either way, it was a big year for the Rock Hall. I'm just still waiting till next year when Slipknot's eligible. If they don't make it, well... I don't know what I'd do, but... Something. Intervene, I guess. I don't know. We're just built different here. Big news for Kemper owners this week. Now, if you're not a Kemper owner, or you're not familiar with what it is, basically the concept is that it is an AMP profiler. Different than an AMP modeler, because you hook it up to your rig, and it runs a pre-prepared audio track through the rig, then listens to the response. From this process, the Kemper can recreate your rig inside itself giving you the ability to plug up and sound exactly like the rig you profiled, even storing multiple rigs at once inside the Kemper. This allows you to bring your whole collection with you to a gig. This is different from your run-of-the-mill modeler, which is just simulating specific amplifiers through digital signal processing technology and trying to sound like the amps it's modeling. The Kemper actually takes a digital snapshot and it stores it. The news is that there's one key thing that people have complained about with Kemper since its inception. Whenever you take this digital profile, you're taking it at one instance, with one value of settings on your amp's control panel. Once you've stored the profile, the Kemper does have its own set of controls, but the key thing is different amps have their tone and gain controls designed differently. There's different center frequencies, different tapers on the potentiometers, and some controls are cut only, while others are boost and cut. It's this fact alone that makes a lot of our amps unique as increasing the mid knob on a Marshall by 2 won't necessarily have the same mid boost in increasing the mids on a Fender by 2. Kemper has announced that they're releasing a new, massive update to their profiling units by adding what they call Liquid Profiling, touting it as a blend between modeling and profiling. Kemper has stated that the initial rollout will have around 40 different amplifier channels offered, with the ability to create a liquid profile by selecting the option when creating a profile of that amp. It'll tell you to set the gain, tone stack, and presence controls in certain positions, then capture the profile, giving the system a reference point that allows it to model the actual behavior of the tone stack when you go to use said profile. Kemper hasn't released a full list yet, but we know some of the liquid profile channels available are a Marshall GTM45, a Fender Deluxe Reverb, and a Vox AC30, all classic amplifiers with very different behaviors in their controls. Kemper has also said that if you're feeling froggy, you can even take a profile and force it to be a liquid profile of an entirely different amplifier, giving you the controls and behaviors of a Marshall on your favorite Fender amplifier, allowing for some really unique and creative use of profiles. All in all, I think it's really cool. That's something that's always turned me off about the Kemper, its inability to have authentic control modeling and being stuck with Kemper's control options. But with this liquid profiling update, and presumably more liquid profiles being rolled out in the future, I see it as a great step in the right direction for the company. So it's kind of ironic that this story has come up now, considering the episode that we're doing today. However, I'm too excited not to talk about this. Sun amplifiers seems like they might be going through a revival. (laughs) Yeah, so before a couple weeks ago, Sunamp's website would just redirect you to the Fender page as they currently own the brand, but new developments have arisen, and now their website is back up with a very ominous style reminiscent of some of the first MXR advertisements. When you go to their website now, all it has is their logo with the words history, legacy, power, links to a Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram, and a countdown that's currently sitting at 88 days. The first Twitter post was about a week ago, and it just states the sun shall rise again. And the rest of the Twitter is just a bunch of posts seeming like a person setting up an office that collects and repairs old sun amps, featuring things like a Centura, a Beta Lead, and a 200S, a few of Sun's most popular amplifier models. The thing on here that makes me the most excited is also the only thing posted on both the Instagram and the TikTok, a less-than-minute-long video consisting mostly of a sunrise with a bunch of quick flashes of pictures in between. These pictures start with old photos of large vintage sun stacks in use, but probably the strongest thing here is the shortcuts to digital models and circuit boards. The first one is of an amplifier chassis and inside model of the circuit for a Sun 200S, while the second is a metal chassis with measurements for a Sun 100S. While all of this might seem like the work of a repair tech, about halfway through the videos, we do see a cut to just a snippet of a real circuit board that's labeled Sun 100S with a copyright stamp of 2023. What follows is a few shots of what look like vintage Sun amplifier chassis, but in modern production, indicating some pretty strong foreshadowing of a brand revival. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they did it given how more and more people have been modeling vintage sun gear as of recent years with the introduction of a sun model in the Line 6 Helix, a sun model in Amplitude 5, and a few different sun-oriented pedals. Honestly, I don't know how Fender would greenlight the creation of an announcement like this without intending to revive the brand. The only thing that makes me nervous is there's nothing in there indicating the revamp of a Model T, which is one of my favorite amplifiers of all time. I really see that kind of going one of two ways. When Fender did their initial reissue after they acquired the brand, they did reissue the Model T for a couple years. While it was a great amp, it wasn't true to the original at all, other than styling and brand name. It never really took off, and hasn't been as popular or coveted as the original Model T's, which could have put a bad taste in their mouth when it comes to trying it again. On the other hand, the Model T would easily be the star of any Sun revival, and I can see holding off on announcing that until closer to when this timer ticks down. Either way, I've got my fingers crossed. Now, I don't want to sit here and act like I've got any insider information or anything, but I've got a few feelings on what I think they'll do and what I hope Fender will do. First off, from the video, we see a nod to the Sun 200S and 100S, two very powerful, very loud, clean amplifiers from Sun's original lineup. These amps had very simple control schemes and a true spring reverb tank built into them, something in the vein of what Fender's classic amplifiers do. Judging by the price of Fender's current amps and amp heads with similar features, I'm going to go ahead and estimate that Fender's probably going to drop these later this year, probably sitting at a price point of around 1500 bucks a piece, a little more expensive than their current amp heads, but I'm assuming that they'll be a little more expensive due to the brand's legendary status and rarity. Now what I'm hoping Fender will do is reissue these and add a few lower wattage versions of most of the most popular amps. Sun amps have a really unique tone that's all their own, but they are earth-shatteringly loud, so even if you own one of the original Sun amps, you're always fighting to keep it at a manageable volume for small venues or for playing at home. I'm hoping we'll see a lower wattage version of the 1200S, 200S, Model T, and the Beta Lead and Beta Bass. Sure, it takes away the big thing Sun was known for, volume, but it allows you to get the same tonal signature in any recording environment. All in all, I'm super excited for this, and while we haven't been fed much more than a short video and some social media posts, it's still something exciting that's fun to speculate on. It also serves as a great segue into our first topic for today, the Sun Model T. So this week, I wanted to talk to you guys all about sun amplifiers, and maybe dispel some of the rumors and mysticism that comes from that side of the house, especially everything surrounding the Model T. The reason I phrase it like this is it has to do mostly with a strange sort of hype that's been built up around them, and maybe a little misguided, especially when it comes to talking about Doom Metal and them being the perfect amps for Doom, considering they were never even designed with that intention. If you're not aware of what I'm talking about, just look online for a Sun Model T. Go ahead. If you got a chance to check, you probably saw a few amp heads in varying states of condition going for between $4,000 and 7000 as well as a few different editions or versions, albeit with very limited listings. What's wild to me is that these amps would go for maybe 200 to 500 bucks a decade ago. You could hardly give them away, and they weren't thought very highly of. Now, I have to say... While it may seem like a bandwagon sort of thing, I really do like sun amplifiers. I still think they're great for doom metal, but there's other options out there that do it just as well, maybe even better. Their clean tones are what I really enjoy more than anything, seeing as they have a very unique frequency response for an amplifier due to their original design. It's mad hipster credit every time you whip out a sun amp, but there's much more going on under the hood than many people realize. Today, we're going to look at the history of sun amplifiers their development out of a garage in Oregon, to their superstar rise in fame, their tragic fall, and their short-lived revival. After this, we'll get into some of the modern reasons why these amplifiers will set you back the price of a used car when they were the price of a pedal back in the 2000s. The story of sun amplifiers begins in Tualatin, Oregon in 1962 with two brothers, Conrad and Norm Sunholm. Norm played in a band called The Kingsmen, who were a relatively small act that performed at local dances and schools, and they weren't really making it big. That all changed one day in 1962, when the group was playing a show at a club and kept hearing the song Louie Louie played over the jukebox during the breaks, causing them to learn the song in order to cover it due to its popularity. Their cover was so popular that in one performance, the band even played Louie Louie for 90 minutes straight. Yeah, the same song. Over and over and over for an hour and a half. In 1963, the band's manager, Ken Chase, paid for a recording session at a local studio where they recorded the track and he began to play it on the radio show he hosted, garnering national popularity and a number two spot on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Their newfound popularity caused the Kingsmen to kick off on a nationwide tour across the United States. This tour proposed a problem, though. Norm's bass amp simply wasn't loud enough to play larger venues that the band would be performing at. So Conrad, having experience in audio technology, decided to build a new amp for Norm, creating the first Sun amplifier. The amp Conrad built was actually based off of a DynaCo amplifier, which served as a hi fi audiophile power amplifier, and all Conrad really did was add a preamp stage to the circuit. The kicker with this amp was that it was loud one of the loudest amps they'd seen at the time and were available in the area but the amp still remained exceedingly clean, even when driven. Part of this has to do with a unique aspect of the design of the power amp, a trait referred to as being ultra-linear. But what does this mean, and how does it work? Well, in the early days of amplifier design, manufacturers wanted their amps to be as loud as possible. If you listen to our last episode, you'll remember that early Vox and Fender amps through the beginning of the 1960s were capping out at around 25 to 30 watts of power, with more powerful amplifiers hitting nearly 100 watts later in the decade when you're using power tubes like el34s 606s or kt88s in an amplifier there's a few different ways you can hook them up the usual methods of doing so involve methods either known as triode or pentode there's a lot of science and research involved with this and it basically boils down to how much of the output signal voltage is impressed on the screen grid of the tube In a triode configuration, 100% of the output signal voltage is impressed on the tube, while in a tetrode or a pentode, 0% of the output voltage hits the screen grid of the tube. A majority of guitar amplifier power sections are wired in the pentode configuration, as pentodes will allow for more power. However, it results in a form of distortion that can easily be heard in vintage amps in a pentode configuration. This is why a lot of vintage tube amplifiers get a very saturated form of breakup when you crank the master volume, even on the clean channel. A triode configuration usually results in less power than a pentode configuration, somewhere around half as much, but it also creates a much smoother hi-fi sound that leads to an almost negligible amount of distortion in the power amp section. Many vintage hi-fi stereo amplifiers were wired in this way in order to reproduce sounds as accurately as possible across their volume range. So right now, we have two options, either triode or pentode. But in 1937, an English engineer named Alan Blumlein patented a new technique called distributed loading, eventually leading to the development of ultralinear circuits. In these types of circuits, you essentially combine the characteristics of triode and pentode amplifiers by sending a percentage of the output signal voltage to the screen grid of the tube. Depending on the type of tube used, the percentage of the output signal that's optimal for ultralinear circuits changes, but it's usually anywhere from 20 to 50%. So, what are the major advantages of ultralinear amps? Well, distortion of the power amp is lowered to the same as a triode configuration, sometimes even less, while power output is almost the same as that with a pentode tube, giving you even more volume with even less distortion, creating an extremely loud, clean amplifier. The original amp Conrad makes is a tube preamp he designs that hits the front end of two 75 watt Dynaco power amps for a grand total of 150 watt base amplifier. So as Norm and the Kingsmen embarked on their tour, bassists would be very impressed with Norm's bass tone and the power of his amp, asking him where he got it. So the brothers took the next logical step, and they began building sun amplifiers out of their garage and selling them. Because of course, as we all know, if you want to start a great company, you've got to start in a garage. I mean, look at Google, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, just add sun to the list. Sun amps became so popular that there's a waiting list to have one made and the waiting list becomes so long that Norm drops from the band to focus on sun amps with Conrad full-time. Conrad also begins building guitar amplifiers around the same time, and with orders quickly outpacing what they can produce in the garage, they move the operation in 1965 to a repurposed indoor public swimming pool that had been filled in and turned into an industrial facility. It's around this time that Norm falls out of interest with amplifier manufacturing due to a budding career in real estate, and he sells his share to his brother Conrad. Sun amplifiers got their next big bump in popularity when they started changing up their marketing. Instead of trying to compete with Marshall and Fender, they marketed themselves as a backline solution, meaning they encouraged these bands to keep their favorite amps for studio sessions and recordings, but to purchase Sun amps for their live performances due to their sheer volume. Ultimately, this strategy paid off, and in 1967, The Who was picked up as one of the largest Sun endorsement deals using them for the entirety of their North American tours instead of shipping their Marshall stacks overseas. You see a lot of ads from the late 60s and early 70s that Sutton posted with very simple pictures and black text on a white background that says things like, The Who depends on the sound of sun. Why don't you? Or, The Steve Miller Band uses sun amplifiers exclusively. And even, Ever felt the sound of the Jimi Hendrix experience? They use sun amplifiers and sound systems exclusively although Jimi Hendrix would later switch back to his Marshalls and claim the Sun amps just weren't for him. Honestly, looking at these older Sun ads are some of the coolest guitar-related ads, in my opinion. Just super simple with crazy statements like what could be more powerful than 175 watts? Infinity. Or, uh, ever breathe a frequency? Just, you know, sort of bragging about how much power they had. I personally have the attention span of a squirrel, so that might be why I like these so much, but either way, I'm a fan. Sun Amps lands endorsement deals with the aforementioned bands like The Who and The Jimi Hendrix Experience, but they also garner other big names like The Rolling Stones and Cream, becoming the amplifier backline brand for large touring acts in a very short amount of time. During all of this success, an investor named Bill Hartzell out of Minnesota buys Sun Amplification from Conrad Sun Home for an undisclosed amount, moving the construction of Sun cabinets from Oregon to Kentucky while keeping amplifier production in Oregon. In 1973, Sun begins producing arguably their most popular amplifier model yet, the Model T. Organizing this episode is pretty hard, as the focus of this is 100% on the Model T, so for now, bear with me. We'll come back to the Model T and its features and demos in a second. Let's get on with the history of Sun amplification before we get into my love letter for a discontinued, but now possibly revived amp. (laughs) During the transition, Marshall amplifiers become more powerful and more widely available in America. Along with a British invasion occurring at this time, Marshall takes vast swaths of Sun's market share, and they begin to fall into obscurity. In a last-ditch effort to keep Sun afloat, Bill Hartzell begins to invest in the budding solid-state technology by producing all solid-state Sun amplifiers, like the ever-popular Beta Lead and Beta Base. Sun begins focusing all their efforts on these new solid-state amps that initially really didn't catch on, their tones being wildly different than the original Sun models produced by Conrad Sunholm. Unfortunately, Bill Hartzell is killed in a plane crash in the early 1980s, and the Sun production line is shut down shortly afterwards. It makes a lot of sense, as Bill was really the only one currently interested in keeping the company afloat, and it wasn't the mammoth market force it used to be. In 1985, Fender contacts Bill's estate wanting to buy the name of the Sun Amplification brand in an attempt to revive the line. It seems like they want to start developing new types of amplifiers without risking taking a hit on their main product lineup, all while evoking a bit of the mysticism and hype that still surrounds Sun Amps. Fender releases three amps under their Sun lineup, a new Model T that's very different from the original with 125 watts of power, a Sun 300T, 300 watt base amp, and a Sun 1200S, 1200 watt base amp that has more power than almost any other base amp on the market at that time. Now I know this is a guitar podcast, but I've got to lend some credence to the 1200S. It's a truly great base amp that stays super clean, here, I've got a demo of one using the model on Amplitude 5. I'm using an Ernie Ball Stingray 4-string bass, and I've got every control nearly maxed out on the amp, and it still hardly breaks up. It sounds awesome. while Fender does create some quality amps within the Sun lineup, they never really take off with the amount of success Fender is hoping for, likely due to one of two reasons. The first is that while Sun amps were popular, and people still coveted the older ones from when Conrad Sunholm was at the helm of the company, newer production Sun amplifiers had left a bad taste in guitarists' mouths, and presumably they believed that these newer Sun reissues were the similar poor quality they'd seen in the early 80s lineup. The second reason likely had to do with the fact that more and more student musicians were getting into the amplifier market and combo amplifiers with the new hotness of the time leading many people to shrug off the large high-powered tube heads released under the sun name for the more tame and easily portable combo amplifier format Fenner knows that their 300t and their 1200s models are extremely powerful beasts with great sound So they pull a sneaky on the bass community as a whole, and they cram the same circuit into the Fender Bassman 300 Pro and 1200 Pro respectively, keeping the circuit and the design alive while simply letting go of their reissue Model T after only a few years of production. With this, sun falls back into obscurity with the brand name being officially retired by Fender in 2002. You know, it's kind of funny. If you look at forums from around this time, you can see people stating that if you need a loud, clean amp for cheap, You can pick up a Sun Model T or a beta lead for anywhere from 100 to 500 bucks. People just didn't want them. You could hardly give them away. But if you check reverb now, you'll likely find Model Ts selling for anywhere between 4 to 5 grand. So what happened? This massive spike in popularity all has to do with our next topic a band called Sun, sometimes incorrectly pronounced as Sun O. For now, let's hop into the star of this week's gear segment, the Sun Model T. Now, as I said before, this segment of the episode is pretty much going to be my love letter to a discontinued amp, the Sun Model T. Before we get into it, I'll be straight up with you guys. I don't have an original vintage Sun Model T. So what I'll be using here instead is a solid state clone of the amp built by Chris over at Sparkbox FX, but more on his awesome job with that amp in a minute. The first generation of Model T was produced from 1973 to 1975, and on the face of it, it's a pretty standard amplifier. It's got four 6550 power tubes, for a total of 150 watts of power, and three 12AX7 preamp tubes with a solid-state diode rectifier, so not a lot of sag going on here. The first and second generation Model Ts have a very strange-looking input section, with five total jacks arranged in the same pattern as the number five face of a die, It gets a little less strange when you realize it's just a normal and bright input and output on either side, and the center jack is an input for both channels, sort of like how you can jumper channels 1 and 2 on vintage Marshalls. Model Ts have 7 knobs on the faceplate, 1 volume each for the bright and normal channels, a 3-band bass middle and treble EQ, a presence control, and a master volume knob. On the back panel you've got a power output for an accessory, a polarity switch, 2 speaker cabinet outputs, in a four-position rotary selector to switch between 2, 4, 8, and 16-ohm cabinets for your speaker outs. From 1974 to 1978, we see the introduction of the second generation of Model Ts, with a big cosmetic difference here being the large red sun logo with red knobs versus the white logo with silver knobs. The major added feature here is the mids knob now has a frequency selector with three positions, 750Hz, 1.5 kHz, and 3 kHz to allow for more control over the midrange. The tone stack in this one is a Baxandall style tone stack, similar to what you'd find in a vintage Ampeg, instead of the Fender Bassman-style tone stack present in the first generation. Overall, the differences between the first generation Model T and the second generation Model T are very minor, with both amps being able to dial in the same suite of tones and having the same general tonal character. To get a general idea of what a Model T sounds like in its comfort zone with no effects, here's a demo with all the knobs set at noon using both the bright and the normal channels. The normal channel on these really just tends to make the amp louder, while cranking the gain on the bright channel will add most of your bite and your grit to the amplifier. I've kept all the knobs at noon, but I'll play a quick riff on just the normal channel, then add the bright channel in it and play the same riff back with some increased gain on that side. One key factor of these amps that everybody seems to overlook for some reason is that they're not a high-gain amplifier. Not at all. They're like other sun amps, extremely loud and clean, but even with both channels and all settings maxed, this is about as much gain as we're going to (laughs) get. Now this begs the question, why do I love these amps so much? I'm a metal player. What would I want with an amp that can't provide as much gain as something like an Orange, a Marshall, or a Mesa Boogie? For me, it has to do with the fact that the Sun Model T has a very distinct flavor to it, unlike no other, something similar to an Orange, but with a far larger amount of mids present. This unique frequency response gives it a slight growl that's continuously present, and it sounds very unique to me. I really enjoy it. Not to mention the fact that I constantly use pedals for almost all of my dirt, and Sun Model T's are awesome pedal platforms. Even with something as simple as a Tube Screamer, pairing one of the most overused drive pedals in history with a Model T provides a completely original flavor of gain compared to using one with something like a Fender. (laughs) Not to mention, the Model T is one of the few amplifiers that works just as well as a guitar amp as it does serving as a bass amp. Now, the tones that you just heard were Spark Bach clone tones of a vintage, sun-manufactured Model T. But during Fender's time with the brand, they manufactured Model T's in Lake Oswego, Oregon, that honestly ended up being entirely different from the original. The Fender Model T's are easily identical by the fact that they have a single input, two channels that each have their own volume, and a three-band EQ with a gain knob on channel 2, a channel select button, and a presence pot. The back panel of the Fender reissues are where they start to get a little more modern and feature-laden, with jacks for main and external speakers, an XLR line-out, a foot switch, a quarter-inch amp line-out, and a quarter-inch amp line-in which bypasses the preamp, volume levels for the individual channels affect send and returns, and even a switch labeled arena and club which lowered the overall output of the amp to 25 watts. All of these features aside, the Fender reissue Model T sounds starkly different from the original Model T. It's still a great amp, but it has a much tighter overall tone with a scooped mid-range indicative of a Fender amp, losing the core DNA of what the Model T was all about. And it's precisely because of those characteristics why I believe the original Model Ts have worked for the band Sun, as well as numerous different doom metal acts over the years, making these Fender reissues less popular and desirable than the original Sun Model Ts of the 70s. So if you like the sound of the Sun Model T, but you aren't looking to drop about 5 grand on one that may or may not be the most reliable piece of gear you own, what are your modern options? The sad thing to say is, there's honestly not much. Most of the clones of the Model T are very expensive, boutique amps or kits that can cost upwards of two or $3,000. Not exactly something that I'd consider wallet-friendly, especially for an amp with such a unique sound to it that you may not be using it for your day-to-day gigging rig. Jupiter FX makes the OMOCT, a built-to-order all-tube Model T clone that costs around $2,900 US and has a one-month lead time. Pretty expensive. Winter Amps makes another clone that clocks in at $3,400, and Jessup makes a clone sitting right around $2,900 as well. One thing that does look pretty promising is the Model T offered by Seriatone. It comes either as a kit or as a fully-assembled amp, with the fully-assembled version costing $1,600. It's likely going to be your most budget-friendly, all-tube, part-for-part Model T clone. While most of those prices seem pretty daunting, there are a few limited options out there if you're looking to scratch that itch. For my Model T demos in the earlier section, I was using the Sparkbox Model T built by Chris from Sparkbox FX. The Sparkbox Model T is honestly what I've been teasing over these last few episodes, Chris was kind enough to build this to order at my request, even adding in an effects loop to the design. He was just a dream to work with. He was super cool, answered all kinds of questions, sent me all kinds of pictures throughout the build process. He was great to work with. This amplifier is all solid state, built with high quality parts, using JFETs in place of tubes in the preamp, and an ultra clean solid state power amp to push about three watts. While three watts doesn't sound like a lot, this thing is plenty loud, If I crank it up past 7 on the master, it's shaking the floor of my house and making my ears ring. It's plenty loud enough to get a great tone for recording, whether you're wanting vintage sun tones or huge, ground-shaking doom metal. And if you're playing live, it's certainly enough to mic your cabinet and get a great tone through the PA. This thing is a true solid-state clone of a first-gen Model T, minus the presence knob, and it sounds absolutely great. Chris is currently selling them for $150 to $175 Canadian, Based on the price, he can get get the hard-to-find J201 JFETs he's using in place of the tubes. Honestly, it's kind of funny, sort of like when you go to a seafood restaurant and they say a dish is market price. This translates to anywhere between $110 to $130 USD, and you can contact him about ordering one over on his Instagram at sparkboxfx. He's also making clones of the Marshall Lead 12 in the same format, for the same price if that's more your style. The Dell Cam Audio California Doom is an amp-in-a-box pedal that follows the same circuit path as the preamp section of a first-gen Sun Model T, as well as an added boost circuit with a separate foot switch. It's very well put together, honestly probably one of the best-looking and sturdiest-looking pedals I've seen in a long time, with a three-band EQ, master volume, bright and normal channels, and an independent knob for the boost. This pedal sounds extremely good when you're running it into the return of an American Voice tube amp, like a PRS (laughs) MT-15. The California Doom is just under 200 bucks, and it can be ordered from Delcam Audio's reverb shop. You know, I never thought to ask him, but I wonder why it's called the California Doom. Sunamps are from Oregon, like they were never even manufactured in California under any owner. Huh. Either way, both of these options are great choices that are going to get you 98% of the way to a real Model T while only spending about 3% of the price. Yeah. Literally, I just did the math. A 97% savings is bonkers to me. There are some other options available that I unfortunately couldn't get for the episode. One Model T amp in a box that everybody raves about is the electronic audio experience Model FET. The EAE Model FET has the same controls as a Model T, minus the presence pot, but what's unique about it is that it also includes an approximation of the phase inverter circuit, bringing it even closer to the architecture of a true Model T. They sell for about 220 bucks on the used market, and they seem to be sold out on EAE's website, but there's plenty of demos comparing them to a real Model T, and they sound absolutely amazing. The Earthquaker Devices Acapulco Gold is my last on my list here, and I put it there for a good reason. I'm a huge fan of Earthquaker Devices, it's no secret. I've even got an Earthquaker flag hanging up in my studio. But for some reason, I just can't get around the Acapulco Gold. If you haven't seen it before, it comes in a standard-sized enclosure with one single, massive knob on it. And as per Earthquaker Device's own description, they say it's modeled after the sound of a cranked vintage Model T amplifier. Before I get into my own thoughts on this, I'll play it for you guys so I don't cloud your opinion up front. Here's the Acapulco Gold with its single knob set all the way up. Alright, the Acapulco Gold sounds great. Honestly, I really love it. It's got an awesome sound to it that I enjoy, but it doesn't really sound like a Model T. I've done more sound demos in this segment than I do in a lot of my episodes. Like I said, it's my love letter to this amp, so I feel like by now you guys have a pretty good approximation of what a Model T is supposed to sound like, and this just isn't really it. It's in the ballpark for sure, but it has a lot more compression and a much more scoop mid-range than a Model T does. It works much better for metal, as you heard the insane amount of gain on it, but that's not the sound of a Model T. It sounds more like a fuzz than anything. Not to mention, the pedal is honestly pretty difficult to use. That sounds sort of counterintuitive, considering it only has a single knob, but this thing pushes an insane amount of gain that not only makes your signal crunchy, but it makes it so loud that if you kick it on without thinking about it, you will literally give yourself hearing damage. And that's not an exaggeration whatsoever. It doesn't have any of the tone controls like amp-in-a-box pedals do, and it really doesn't work as an amp-in-a-box, requiring you to use a clean amp to run it into the front of. All that being said, I still really do like it, and I think it's perfect for somebody who likes the general idea of a Model T, but is turned off by some of the less desirable aspects of the amp. It only goes for $139 too, which isn't bad at all. So you've now picked out your favorite Model T clone, and you're ready to rock. But here's the real secret to this amp. It starts to get even better when you begin to layer even more gain into the input, which brings me to the second famous gear section of this episode, the Earthquaker Devices Life Pedal. Yeah, that's right, this week is a double feature. As guitar players, we see a lot of signature gear for the bands and players we love come out, mostly in the form of signature guitars, but a little less common in the form of signature amps and pedals. Sure, you have the odd ones here and there, like Sinister Gates' Signature Schechter Hellwind, Chris Stapleton's Signature Princeton, or Slash's Signature Marshall AFD-100, but they're not as common as Signature Model guitars. While this makes sense from a marketing standpoint, obviously the guitar is the thing that most people will associate with a guitarist, because, well, they're holding it. It doesn't really make sense from a tonal standpoint, as a majority of our actual tones come from our amplifier and our pedals. To bring out our second piece of Famous Gear, we're going to talk about something quite a bit more modern. My favorite signature pedal, the Earthquaker Devices Life Pedal, Sun's Signature Stompbox. At its core, the Life Pedal is really just three circuits crammed into one. An octave, a distortion, and a boost. To get more specific, the octave is the analog up in the style of a Dan Armstrong Green Ringer or an Earthquaker tentacle. The distortion is in the style of a Whiteface Proco rat, And the boost is actually the same as a previously discontinued Earthquaker pedal, the Black Eye Boost. All of these circuits together are capable of some really ripping distortion. And while of course it was designed for a Doom metal band, it's capable of so much more. From lightly overdriving a classic Fender amp like this, to creating the boosted, octave-equipped RAT of your dreams. I'm about to get carried away playing with this again. Before we do some more tones, let's hop into why this pedal exists and its various versions since its inception. First, we see the Life Pedal V1 released in mid-2019, and the story behind it is actually pretty simple. Stephen O'Malley and Greg Anderson of Sun released an album titled Life Metal, the name being a play on the genre death metal, two months earlier with an absolutely crushing guitar tone anybody would be envious of, Doom fans or not. The core of the band's guitar tone for this album were, of course, their Sun Model Ts, but fed with whiteface rats, vintage Shinai FY6 octave fuzzes, and a variety of MOSFET boost pedals. O'Malley and Anderson began toying with the idea of releasing a signature sun pedal during the development of the album, and they claimed that they contacted Reverb, who pointed them towards Earthquaker devices, to help them collaborate on the idea. The result was a double-wide, two-foot switch pedal that had five knobs and a three-position rotary switch. The first control blended in the amount of octave up circuit found in the band Shinai Fuzz. The next three controls were the usual suspects on the Proco RAT, distortion, filter, and amplitude, with amplitude being volume, with the last control being magnitude to control the amount of boost. The three-position rotary switch selected between three different clipping options for the RAT, op-amp for a wide-open, forceful tone, symmetrical diode clipping, an asymmetrical diode and LED clipping. The original pedal was limited to only a thousand units and sold with special bundles only available from the band themselves, selling out extremely quickly and with units being scalped for extremely high prices soon after. They're still somewhat being scalped, honestly. If you want an original Life Pedal V1, you're likely looking at anywhere between 400 and 1100 bucks, depending on how much of a collector you are with wanting the box and the stickers and all that nonsense. Key characteristics of this pedal are the presence of the knobs on the back plate of the enclosure and the fact that the distortion circuit has an actual LM308 chip. But we all know from our episode on the Proco Rat that that's a lot of mythical fairy dust that surrounds the LM308. It isn't necessarily based on anything other than wishes and dreams. (laughs) In January of 2020, Earthquaker bent to the will of the fans who wanted the life pedal and said, all right, all right, all right, we'll do it one more time this time reissuing the life pedal as a version 2 with a total of 2,500 units. The life pedal V2 had the same dual foot switch design, albeit with a smaller, more classic Earthquaker enclosure that had all the knobs mounted on the faceplate of the pedal rather than the back. This version has the same circuit as the original life pedal, but now includes an expression jack for you to be able to blend the octave in and out with a foot pedal rather than having to bend over and physically turn the knob. This limited edition release also has the LM308 chip in the distortion circuit, and was once again subject to the same scalping the V1 was. If you want to find a V2 today, you're still looking at anything between 350 and 600 bucks, depending on condition and packaging. In November of last year, Earthquaker, likely realizing how much money they could make if they kept the Life Pedal on as a standard offering, released the new and improved Life Pedal V3, now holding a permanent place in Earthquaker's catalog rather than as a limited edition. The v3 keeps the added expression jack in place of the v2 but to allow even more control over the octave circuit you now have the addition of a third foot switch to turn the octave on or off completely which also includes Earthquaker's flexi switch technology essentially the ability to hold your foot on the switch for as long as you want the effect on rather than toggling it on and off for some of the more pedal purists out here you'll be absolutely heartbroken to know that because of its status as a mass production pedal, Earthquaker wasn't able to use the LM308 op-amp chip in the V3, instead opting to use the OP07DP op-amp, which, wouldn't you know it, is the same exact op-amp used in the modern production ProCo RATS. You know, the same one where the frequency response is exactly the same as the LM308, but for some reason everybody rags on it. (sighs) Gotta love hype trains. So now that we're all familiar with the provenance of this monster of a pedal, let's see everything that it's capable of. The octave circuit is right after the input stage and it's super simple. It's similar to the analog octave circuit that we all know and love, but it uses germanium diodes to accomplish its clipping. What I find very useful about the octave here is its ability to blend it in and out. See, normally with an analog octave up, it's used in conjunction with a fuzz to add a unique, high-pitched flavor to any notes played on the neck pickup and above the twelfth fret. Sort of like this. First, I'll play a lick without the octave, then with the octave engaged. However, with a life pedal, I find myself really using it to add this almost sort of ring-modulated effect to the distortion to make it this chaotic, noisy tone that almost sounds like it's falling apart. It's a different use of the circuit than I normally find myself going for, but it works extremely well here. First I'll play a riff with just the regular distortion, then we'll kick on the octave with it, and when we play the same riff back a second time around, you'll hear the difference. The most interesting thing to me on here is the addition of different clipping options for the rat. This is reminiscent of the famed Keeley mod that Robert Keeley used to do with rat pedals back in the infancy of his company, and I see it as something extremely useful. To start off, the symmetrical clipping is the same configuration as a traditional ProCo rat. It uses silicon diodes to accomplish a distortion that's very tight and compressed with a pronounced low end. The asymmetrical clipping makes use of a mix between standard silicon diodes and LEDs to create a much looser, more mid focus distortion that honestly reminds me of something like a turbo rat. The op amp option is the loudest and most open of the settings, giving you tons of volume and power without artificially compressing the signal. Like I said before, the boost circuit is actually just a clone of an old Earthquaker pedal that's since been discontinued, the Black Eye Boost. The Black Eye Boost is just a MOSFET-based clean boost pedal, but it's great in this circuit to be able to increase your volume and slam the input section of your amp after getting a great, already distorted tone. So when you throw everything together, you get some crazy, gainy goodness. Something along the lines of this. (laughs) Now that we've broken down the Life Pedal into its three constituent parts, it doesn't really seem so mystical as some people make it out to be. Did I already have an analog octave, a rat, and a boost? Of course I did! Did I get suckered into buying this anyway because the graphics are cool and I'm a huge sun fan? You betcha. But the good news is, you don't have to. The Life Pedal V3 is pretty steep price-wise, sitting at about $300 if you buy it brand new, and around $270 if you can pick one up used. The good news is, there's a few ways we can go about saving a bit of money if you want the same great tones on a budget. The first option is to pick up a clone. The Life Pedal is a very popular clone for small builders to make, and usually you'll end up paying quite a bit less for a clone versus the real thing. Looking on Reverb, the cheapest one I see is around 85 bucks, with most of them sitting between 100 and 150 bucks, almost half the price. The other way we can go about this is by getting budget versions of each individual effect within the pedal sort of piecing together our own with three separate pedals. If you go this route, you need to be a little careful, as you can end up spending more than the life pedal costs. For the analog octave section, there's probably going to be the portion that you spend the most money on right here. It's a little confusing given how simple the circuit is. Uh, What you're looking for here is something like a Dan Armstrong Green Ringer clone or an Earthquaker Devices tentacle. The tentacle itself is 129 bucks brand new, but it regularly sells for around 90 bucks used. If you can find a clone of it for cheaper, you're headed in an even better direction. If for some reason you feel like you're not going to use the octave up, first, I'd see a psychotherapist because something's obviously wrong with you. Reach out if you need a number, I know of a few good ones. But you can always omit this part of the circuit to save yourself quite a bit of money. For the distortion section, of course we're going to use a Proco RAT. If you were around for episode 27, we took a deep dive into all the different versions of the Proco Rat, determining that the modern Rat 2 is the closest reproduction to the vintage whiteface Rat on the market today. It's $89 and can go for as low as $50 used. While you'll be missing out on the op-amp and the asymmetrical clipping options, it'll still get you the same distortion circuit that's at the heart of the life pedal. For the boost section, we can use any FET style booster to get the same overall flavor as the magnitude section of the life pedal, Something like the Electroharmonics Glove will work extremely well here, also only 80 bucks brand new, just like the Rat. If you're looking to save a little more, you can go with one of the most inexpensive but effective boost pedals on the market, the Electro-Harmonix LPB1. While it's not FET-based, it's only 46 bucks, and it works extremely well as a simple single knob boost. Now you might think that I'm crazy, but if you shop smart and you pick up some used deals, you can get the component pedals of the Life Pedal for roughly 180 bucks or less, saving you a little over 100 bucks off the brand new price of the Life Pedal V3. Don't believe me? Let's play a little game. I've got Haley here. Hi, everybody. And while she's not a guitar player herself, she's heard me noodle around enough to know her way around tones and have a better ear than at least the average person.
1: Yeah, you are constantly showing me things.
0: Well, I've recorded two riffs here on my Sparkbox Model T through two different rigs. One rig has the Life Pedal V3, and the other rig has a Tentacle, a Rat, and an lpb one I'll play each one back, we'll call them Rig A and Rig B, and you'll try to to guess which one is the Life Pedal and which one is the Jerry Rig Pedal chain. If you're listening along to the podcast at home, feel free to play along and guess for yourself as well. You ready? Yep, I'm ready. Alright, first up... Rig A. Sounds pretty good, here's Rig B. Five seconds on the clock to think about it got your answer
1: i think it's a
0: you think a is the life pedal
1: yeah
0: a is the jerry rigged version yeah a is our uh our clone um all right all right one more round this time with some different settings see if you'll pick it up this time here's rig a Rigby all right five seconds on the clock times up. What do you think? I don't know. Well, are they just super close? Yeah, Did one sound, sound better than the other?
1: Really close. One of them sounds The first time around one of them sounded a little bit more muddy than the other. The other one sounded cleaner, but now they're just sounding the same to me. But I'm I'm going to I'm going to just guess anyway. So go with B.
0: B was the jerry-rigged version. You picked the jerry-rigged version both times. I mean, hey, that just goes to show that even working on a budget, you're able to get the same tones as more expensive gear. You're going to get to a point that your audience really isn't going to be able to tell the difference, especially in a live context, but in a studio context for sure. Anyway, thanks for letting me terrorize you, hun.
1: As always.
0: (laughs) So what do both the Sun Model T and the Earthquaker Life Pedal have in common? They're both staples of the monstrous doom metal band, Sun. I'm going to address the elephant in the room right out of the gate. I have no idea how Sun is able to use the Sun Amplification name and logo as their brand name. I don't know how or why that works in terms of licensing and branding. Fender still owns the Sun name. If you try to go to Sun's website, it you know it's owned by Fender. I'm just surprised there hasn't been any sort of legal dispute over it. But if you're looking for an answer as to why they're able to keep that name, you're not going to find it here. Sun is actually a bit of a funny case for me. I sort of stumbled upon the Model Ts before I'd ever heard of Sun the Band, and over the last month or so that I've been planning this episode, I found myself listening to them more and more. At first, I was like, ah, you know, I don't know about this band, it really sounds like a bunch of noise, but I guess I'll talk about them anyway. I mean, how can I talk about Sun amps without talking about Sun the Band? But the more I listened to them, the more it started to grow on me, eventually with appreciating the guitar tone and then the music itself. It still may be off-putting to some if it's your first time hearing them, but I proudly consider myself a fan now and the owner of two Sun t-shirts. You know, people do change. It's possible. Sun style as a band is very slow and melodic. It's been described as doom metal, stoner metal, And in my opinion, most accurately, drone metal, as many of Sun's songs simply feature them hitting a strong power chord in an extremely low tuning and holding it for longer than I can hold my breath. Their songs are extremely long compositions of guitars, stringed instruments, and custom percussion that would evoke the images of giant leviathans walking out of the ocean. Or at least, that's what I see in my head. That being said, it's no surprise that Sun uses gear like the Life Pedal and the Model T to get these intense, loud, sustaining chords that make their music a mainstay of the genre. But before we get into the tones, let's get into the history. Sun originally formed in 1998 in Seattle, Washington, between two friends, Stephen O'Malley and Greg Anderson, under the name Mars. The band chose both of these names in honor of the 90s drone metal band Earth, one of their inspirations. The band was first signed to label Hydrahead Records shortly after their inception, and they began recording their first album, the Grimrobe Demos, in 1998. Later that year, Greg Anderson would found his own record label, Southern Lord Records, which would become the band's primary label going through the future, as well as serving as a launching platform for other small doom metal acts looking for a record label. Sun would release their second album, Void, in 2000 under both Hydrahead before moving exclusively to Southern Lord for their subsequent albums. The third studio album by Sun, titled Flight of the Behemoth, was released in 2002 and rounded out a trio of albums that took inspiration from the band Earth as well as the sound of an earlier sludge metal act called the Melvins. Most of Sun's sound at this point was based on concepts already put forth by these bands, with one of the tracks on Void even having a pretty sizable recorded sample of an earlier Melvin song placed in the middle of it. In mid-2003, Sun released the album White One, which they'd finished up in the end of 2002 while recording both sessions for White 1 and the subsequent White 2. For fans, this album was a bit of a departure from what they'd been used to with the band, making numerous strange stylistic choices such as having English author Julian Cope read poetry for the vocals for the majority of one song and including the lyrics to a Norwegian folk song in another. During the recording sessions of White 1, the band also tracked the majority of White 2, although they would release it in 2004 after finishing up the final work. White 2 was much more in line with Sunstyle Style on their original albums. The White Albums became the push the band needed to break out of their shell and further develop their ideas, following these with the album Black 1 in 2005 and Alter in 2006, the latter being a joint venture with Japanese metal band Boris. Up until this point, Sun as a band was extremely stifled, likely due to the fact that the uh, doom and black metal scenes were looked down upon after tragic incidents in Norway. But depending on who you ask, Sun was either responsible for changing public opinion or rode the wave of a changing public opinion with their sixth album, Monoliths and Dimensions, released in 2009. Monoliths and Dimensions was Sun's largest, most complex venture yet, featuring various guitar players, a Hungarian singer, trombones, upright basses, French horns, harp, flutes, and even a full-string ensemble. The album received an extremely positive review from critics, landing on the Billboard Heatseekers chart, a chart specifically for up-and-coming artists. Monoliths and Dimensions spawned an interim album titled Canon in 2015, based on the previous sessions, and further developing the band's relationship with Attila Sachar, who now plays the Moog Synthesizer as a full-time member of the band. In mid-2019, the band released their famed album Life Metal, which is said to have a much happier overall sound to it than their previous albums due to the band members being better, in better places in life. Life Metal was followed a few months later by the album Pyroclass, based on the sessions from Life Metal, and was entirely recorded and mixed on analog tape by Steve Albini from Shellac. The history of Sun is honestly a little sparse. I spent a couple days poring over interviews and articles for anything that I could find, and a majority of what I find really has to do with the album releases and the way their styles changed over time. I know it's a little light here, but for anybody unfamiliar with the band or curious about their journey, it's a quick little rundown of how they've evolved. The truly interesting thing about Sun isn't really their history, but rather their live shows. Plenty of bands have their own gimmick that they do to make their shows interesting, but Sun is for sure one of the more creative acts that I've seen. If you watch the rig rundown from Premiere Guitar, which, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you do, it's really cool, you'll see that Sun uses no less than 13 amps with massive frayette, City, and Ampeg cabinets to move the amount of air they need to get massive tones. Videos of their live show show the duos wearing monk robes with liberal use of fog machines, but the real kicker is just the sheer level of volume that Sun gets at their live shows. Of course, it's always good practice to bring hearing protection to a concert, but when I say bring hearing protection to a Sun concert, I genuinely mean it. History and life shows aside, we all know what we're getting into now. Now to get into the tones of Sun. Normally when I do this section, I try to pick a specific song of an artist and stick with that, and usually that's just the best way to do it, because of how varied recording techniques and gear choices can be when it comes to individual songs on an album. But with Sun, it really seems best to target an entire album. If you listen to a Sun album from start to finish, it sort of all blends together as if it's one extremely long song. And what better album to work with than the one that inspired our famous pedal for today, 2019's Life Metal. Steven O'Malley uses a Travis Bean 1000A for his guitar. If you're not familiar with Travis Bean, they're a very small boutique guitar manufacturer based in Florida that build extremely high-end instruments custom to order. It's hard to get a bearing on the price of their instruments as secondhand sales range anywhere from five grand to ten grand online an o'malley specific guitar is a double cut with an aluminum neck koa body brass nut two travis bean signature humbuckers and a two-volume two-tone control scheme greg anderson uses a gibson les paul deluxe with Demarzio super distortion humbuckers in the guitar's p90 routing these typically go for about 2800 bucks and they have the standard features of a Gibson Les Paul with a mahogany body and neck, rosewood fretboard, and a Tech nut. Normally, I have all kinds of recommendations about what kind of guitar you should be using to get this specific type of tone based around a variance of things, including the construction of the body, the perceived comfort of the neck for the style of music, the type of pickups, and the overall quality of the hardware. So in saying this, I honestly feel a little out of my comfort zone, But when it comes to getting the tones for sun, the guitar is actually a very small amount of the equation. You could ideally use whatever guitar you've already got for this without much fuss, but there's a few guidelines here that'll make your experience a little better. First off, I'd recommend using a guitar with passive, high-output humbuckers. Whether they're a vintage PAF-style humbucker or something a bit hotter like a Seymour Duncan Invader, anywhere on that spectrum will work well but we want to focus on high output in order to contribute to the long, ringing sustain we'll need for this tone. You'll want at least two humbuckers because using both pickups instead of just the neck or the bridge will get us the power and depth of the neck pickup along with the brightness and grit of the bridge pickup. Second, I'd avoid anything hollow or semi-hollow. If you're trying to really get an earth-shattering doom tone, you're going to need to move a lot of air and the last thing you need is the chambers in your guitar resonating with the sound in the room. While feedback can be used creatively in this tone, we want to be able to control it as much as possible, and a hollow or a semi-hollow body guitar is going to hinder that. Lastly, if you've got a guitar that's already set up for a lower tuning, you're going to want to stick with that. Sun uses extremely low tunings, sitting around drop B and drop A a majority of the time, and having thicker strings on your guitar is going to help it stay in tune and sustain longer than simply loosening thinner strings to get down there. Of course, you could always use a digital pitch shifter like a Digitech Drop if that's more your speed. Here, I'm going to be using my Ibanez RG-DIX-6 MPB. It's got a swamp ash body, maple neck, goto-locking tuners, and Marzio Fusion Edge humbuckers. The added benefit to this guitar is it's got a 26.5-inch scale length, a little bit longer than a standard Fender scale length, but still shorter than a baritone, and the added length will contribute to our tuning stability and tension in lower tunings. I'm using a 12-56 to 56 gauge set of strings in Drop B, so they're a little loose, but it'll stay tight enough that they're over the poles of the pickups when I really dig in for massive power chords. This guitar is actually really special to me. I remember seeing these in Sam Ash when I first started playing guitar and being too afraid to touch it because it looks so expensive. But always wanting to play one, I remember telling my wife about it years later, and she found one online. She surprised me with it. I was over the moon. They're about 600 bucks, and they're honestly a really underrated guitar. People don't give these the credit they deserve. Now I'm sure you guys already know where I'm going when it comes to amps. Of course, Sun uses Sun Model Ts. What's actually really funny about this is Anderson and O'Malley never really sought out Sun amplifiers at the start. They picked them up because back then they were what the band could afford, and they were extremely loud, which suited their music. It really wasn't a whole destination amp thing where they shot out a bunch of different gear and landed on the Model Ts, but rather a function of the times that became part of their identity. In fact, it's very likely that if Sun had never picked up these amps, they'd still be considered bottom of the barrel, and we more than likely wouldn't be talking about them today. As we mentioned before, vintage Model Ts can go for around $5,000 on the used market, so our biggest savings for this rig is going to come from our alternative for the amp. Here I'm gonna stick with the Sparkbox Model T. This thing just got here in the mail this week and I'm already in love with it. It just works extremely well. However, before we get into the settings and how we're gonna use it, let's talk about some other options you can use in case you don't pick up one of the clones I talked about, have a modeling amp or want an amplifier that has a bit of a broader range of uses. The ideal tone that we're going for here is something with a very pronounced mid-range and a very warm low-end. If you look at various other Doom and Drome metal bands like Sleep, for example, you'll see that orange amps are extremely popular in the genre, which 100% makes sense, considering their overall tonality is focused in a similar range that the Model T is. If you've got a modeling amplifier or a VST running something like an OR120, is the perfect solution, as it's got a very clean, low-mid tonality to it. If you're looking for an actual amp, something like an Orange Crush Pro 60 or an Orange Super Crush 100 would work wonders for you. The Crush Pro 60 is a $600 2-channel 60-watt 1x12 combo amplifier with a 2-band EQ on the clean channel, 3-band EQ on the dirty channel, and a master volume with a digital reverb that has three algorithms, one each for plate, spring, and haul. The Super Crush 100 combo goes for $700 and it's a 100-watt, 1x12 combo that has the same features of the 60, minus the separate reverb algorithms, plus a cabinet-emulated DI out. The decision here really lies with how much power you think you need. If you're recording at home, you can get away with something with a much lower wattage, but if you plan to play Doom Metal Live, one of the key facets of the genre is being able to introduce large amounts of volume, and a 100-watt amp is going to pack a whole lot more punch than a 60-watt amp. Like I said, though, I'm using the Sparkbox Model T here. Since I'm just recording at home and will probably never play Doom Metal Live, 3 watts is fine for me, but you better believe I'm going to crank this thing to the max. I've set the amp to both channels active, with the normal gain at 10 and the bright gain at 7. The treble is at 7, mids are at 9, and the bass is at 5, for an awesome mid-push sound to form the basis of our tone. Let's give it a listen. Just a quick note here, if you're using an alternative to a Model T, you'll likely have to adjust the EQ quite a bit more and lay off the gain, as you'll want a relatively clean tone to start with and let the pedals do a majority of the work for the dirt. Speaking of pedals, let's jump on in. Since we're working with the tones off of Life Metal, what better pedal to use than the EQD Life Pedal? Earlier in the episode, we already broke down alternatives you can use to get the same tones as the Life Pedal, so feel free to substitute as you see fit. What we're going to do here is essentially copy Stephen O'Malley's settings on the life pedal, setting the distortion circuit to the rat's forbidden 666 setting with the amplitude, filter, and distortion all at 6. We'll set the clipping switch to op amp, the octave to about 4, and the magnitude to 6 as well, with all three portions of the effect engaged. This will give us a gainy, thick, crushing doom tone that sounds something like this. Stephen O'Malley and Greg Anderson have a host of other pedals on their boards, including a J-Rocket Archer, a discontinued Earthquaker Black Ash, a vintage Fuzzmaster, a Sovtech Big Muff, and an Aguilar Optimizer, but the real highlight is the Life Pedal, and it'll accomplish a majority of what we're setting out to do without all the peripherals. There are two things that the Life Pedal can't do, that are integral to this tone, however. Delay and Reverb. For his Delay and Reverb, Stephen O'Malley uses a Roland Space Echo RE-201, Vintage units go for around $2,000 due to their scarcity, popularity, and maintenance issues as it was a genuine analog tape delay and reverb unit. Which, by the way, if you've never seen one of them in operation, I highly encourage you to look up a video of one working with the cover off. The tape spools out in this really funky sort of way that looks super random and disorganized, but it makes some of the coolest sounds. The Roland Space Echo has 11 different delay modes with controls for rate, intensity, and volume of the repeats, as well as a dedicated reverb circuit with its own controls. Here, I'm using the Boss RE2 Space Echo. This pedal is actually a bit of a meme, as a couple months before it was released, somebody made a Photoshop picture that looked exactly like this thing, the classic Roland Space Echo pared down in into Boss's compact enclosure. It's an awesome pedal that spares no functionality, including a tap tempo, a simulated RE201 preamp, all 11 modes covering all three tape heads and spring reverb, as well as controls for echo and reverb volume, intensity and tone, repeat rate, and wow and flutter. We've set the pedal on mode 11, so everything is active. Then we've set the echo to 5 o'clock, reverb to 9 o'clock, intensity and tone to 10 o'clock, and repeat rate to 9 o'clock, and wow and flutter to noon. It'll give us a really deep, bass-heavy, throbbing repeat that sounds awesome when you're playing single notes. That's it. With the original rig's price sitting at $10,100 at the low end, our rig comes out to a grand total of $1,460, saving us over eight and a half grand. Pretty awesome if you ask me. Alright guys, so this is the point in the episode where I'd normally hit up a recording tip for everybody, but this week we've run long enough. So how about a recording tip any Doom Metal fan would approve of? A slogan taken straight from an old Sun ad. Maximum volume yields maximum results. Yeah, that's it. Crank your amps, annoy your neighbors, lose your hearing in your 20s. At least you had fun. (laughs) So earlier we talked about how Fender bought Sun amplifiers, but did you know Fender actually owns a lot of popular guitar labels, many of which are still in business today? Yeah, believe it or not, Fender actually owns... EVH, Charvel, Jackson, Squire, Bigsby, PreSonus, and has an exclusive marketing and distribution rights to Gretsch Guitars. Looking at that, it's kind of like seeing those charts where one company owns a large amount of other ones in the same industry that always appear to be competing with each other. Kind of like how Pepsi actually owns KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, Sun Chips, Lay's, Doritos, Captain Crunch, and Quaker Oats. I don't know, it's just weird to think about that. When I look at a Jackson, I think of something closer to an Ibanez, not really in the realm of like a Strat or a Telly. Sure, you know, Strats and Jacksons are both double cuts, but that's where the similarities end. Either way, I thought it'd be a cool thing to share. You know what? I really do love sharing, which is why I want to give you a free Pedals and Pickups podcast t-shirt. If you leave me a direct message on any one of my socials, or shoot me an email telling me your favorite piece of budget gear and why you like it, you'll be entered to win a free t-shirt. I'll be drawing a winner at the end of May. Reach out over Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com to suggest topics or just chat about gear. I love talking to you guys. I love giving you advice. I'm here for you. Let's chat. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, support the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. All right. I've been waiting for this amp for too long, so I'm going to spend some much needed time fooling around with it, getting some awesome Doom tones. I love sitting down with you guys this week, sharing all the nonsense that Sun Amps have to offer you, and I hope you enjoyed it too. Till next time, take care.